All right, turn with me in your Bible to James chapter 3, and we're in verse 13. James chapter 3, verse 13, and we're going to read down through verse 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and of good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray together. Fathers, we open your word. We pray that you would open our eyes and our understanding to see you, Jesus, in a greater way, and also to see earthly wisdom and godly wisdom. May we develop that filter and really be able to discern how wisdom is coming into our lives and what's the source of that wisdom. Father, we know that it's your Holy Spirit that leads us and guides us into all truth. And so would you please send your spirit to do just that? May we be rooted and grounded in your love. May we be strengthened in our inner man through the power of your Holy Spirit. Bless this time in Jesus' name, amen. A much needed filter. How does a filter work? It's very simple. It keeps the bad from going in and allows the good to flow through. This summer, we had our laundry washer go out, and that's an important device in a household of six. The Lord blessed us with being able to find a, a used washer, got it home into the laundry room, got it plugged in. We're all excited about that. And then sure enough, this new used washer to us wouldn't drain. So I got on Google, put in the model number of this particular Kenmore, and discovered that many people had had the same problem with this washer, that there's a filter underneath the panel on the bottom that needed to be cleaned out that was preventing water from draining. So that's what I did. I got that panel off, and sure enough, here's this filter. It just looked like a basket about this side, you know, metal wire meshing, and it was sitting in a little bit of water. Now, you'll never guess all of those things that were in that filter. There was a bunch of change, quarters and dimes. There's quite a bit of it, but they were nasty because they were sitting in this laundry water and getting all corroded. Now, I have to report to you that I did keep the change. My wife was so grossed out by that, but I put it in my car for parking. I'm like, you know, you never know when you're going to need a quarter. So I got all that change out. And then there's pens and pencils, several of them that were in there, a variety of other things. But then I'm looking over towards the fan. I'm like, I think something's in this fan that's keeping it from turning. There was a surgical glove, a rubber surgical glove that was in there. But I got to tell you, the filter did its job. It probably saved that particular washing machine. And we need a filter in our lives, right? We have a much needed filter in our lives to try to determine what's godly wisdom and what's earthly wisdom? And that's what James presents, is there's two different wisdom. We're getting input in two different ways from two different areas, and we have to be able to discern it and decipher which one that we're living in. Now, if you're taking notes or thinking things through with me, the text really presents three things. First, there's a source of wisdom. There'll be a source of godly wisdom. There'll be a source of earthly wisdom. 
But then it also shows us the mode of each particular wisdom. There's a stream that the mode goes through. So source, mode, and then results. And we'll see that in both categories. Source, mold, not mold, mode, and results. I was stuck on my washing machine, possibly. So verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? James asks this question. He says, look around, and who is wise, and who has understanding among you? Why would James want us to do this? First, for introspection, for us to look at our own lives and go, am I wise? Am I living in and operating in God's wisdom? Also, to look around inside of our friendships, inside of the body of Christ, in our neighborhoods, to try to identify godly, wise people so you know who to go to for wisdom. The Proverbs tells us in the multitude of counselors, there's safety, but not just any counselor. You want to choose your counselor wisely. So this is a good endeavor to try to determine, in my own life, am I walking in God's wisdom? Who in my circle of friends and in the body of Christ that I know that I can go to to search out for godly wisdom? So we continue on with verse 13. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So the way that you can determine if you're walking in wisdom or someone else is walking in wisdom is by their conduct. Not by their words necessarily, not by their knowledge, but the way that they live their lives. It's similar to, how do you tell if somebody's a good driver? Not necessarily what they say about their driving. We're all a good driver until somebody rides with us, right? I think I'm a good driver until I have passengers, and then I'm like, oh, okay. Maybe I'm not such a good driver. So how do you determine if someone's a good driver? Not by what they say, but, why, but what they do. And driving is a lot like wisdom. Because as you're driving, you've got to respond to things that are happening around you. I've got to brake. I've got to brake quickly. I need to speed up. I need to swerve. And life's happening at a fast pace. And stuff is coming at us. And we've got to make decisions of how we're going to respond to situations. And that's where wisdom comes to play. That's where God's word comes to play and we start to put it into practice. But that's the key ingredient to identifying a person of wisdom is their lifestyle, their good conduct. How do they live? But it's not just how they live, but it's the attitude in which they live as well. So we're to have good conduct done in the attitude of meekness, of wisdom. Now what does meekness mean? First, it's meekness. It's understanding that I'm messed up that I can't do things on my own. For us to go to God's wisdom, we first have to understand there's a lack in, in my own life. And so that's meekness. There's a humility about meekness. But also meekness is power under control, like a stallion that has been trained. Meekness isn't weakness. That's what the world says. The world says, if you're meek, you're weak. But Christ said that he was meek, that he was gentle and lowly in spirit. And true strength is found in meekness. It takes true, strong person to have power, to have strength, but yet to have it under control of the Holy Spirit. So meekness is not necessarily being a doormat and just allowing people to walk over you, but it's truly having power under control. So someone who has God's wisdom is going to have good conduct, but lead out in gentleness. They're going to lead out in meekness in people's lives. Verse 14, 
we now find the mode of earthly wisdom. So if you're taking notes or jotting down in your Bible or underlining, it's the mode of earthly wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts. So this is the stream in which earthly wisdom flows. Two things. It is bitter envy and self-seeking. And isn't envy have a bitter taste to it? Isn't it sour? Am I, if I'm envious of what God is doing in someone else's life, it causes me to be discontent with God's doing in my own life. I can't rejoice for what he's given me when I'm busy looking at what he's given to someone else. And there's so many things that run in this vein of bitter envy. And we may think, well, it's not that big of a deal if we're in a place of bitterness and envy, but look at the destruction that it's brought in people's lives throughout Scripture. At the men's conference yesterday, we looked at David's life, and Jonathan's life, and Saul's life. And Saul was a man who lived his life according to earthly wisdom, and he was filled with bitter envy. God had told him that he was no longer going to be king, that he was going to be replaced. Clearly, God's anointing was upon David. There's this little song that hit the charts in Israel. It was on Pandora and on Spotify. People were downloading it. They were listening to it everywhere. It was on the radio. And it went like this. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And Saul hated that. He hated the fact that David was getting a bigger stage than Saul and sought to kill David, all out of bitterness and envy. I'm sure David was like, I'm sick of hearing this song. Could you stop playing it and singing it? Because every time you sing it, Saul tries to kill me. But that was the motivation of Saul's heart, was this bitterness and envy. When you study the Gospels, why did they seek to kill Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, out of bitterness and envy? They didn't like the fact that people were following Jesus instead of following Jesus them. The Ten Commandments warn us about bitterness, the bitterness of envy. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, their house, their ox, their sports car, their green grass. It gets us in a terrible place. It can cause us to do things that we wouldn't do otherwise, this bitterness of envy. Maybe it's somebody in the body of Christ where you really look at their gifts and how God's using them, and you go, oh, I wish I was like that. Or their personality, or their job, or, or this or that. I was teasing around with my wife, Amber, saying, I think I'm going to try out for the worship team, you know? Deep down, I'm like, oh, it'd be fun to be a musician and play the electric guitar and sing and all that stuff. And my daughter's like, Dad, that's not a good idea. You should not do that, right? But there's something about it where we just long other people's gifts. So we're warned about the bitterness of envy, but we're also warned about self-seeking. This is inside of all of us. We're born with it. It's our sinful nature that we're selfish and self-seeking. If you doubt this, you probably haven't spent time with a toddler recently. Because kids at very young ages, the self-seeking just comes out, doesn't it? You take something from them that they really want, and boy, you sure get a fit. You don't give them something that they want, and the fit just comes out. Our son, Wyatt, you know, he's just busting me up right now. He's 17 months old, and, like, I'll be eating some granola for breakfast, and I'll have it in my bowl, and then he's on this high chair with his tray, and he's got his bowl of granola, and he's got his little spoon, and he loves to feed himself. He's already, man, independent. I'm going to feed myself. 
You can see it all over him. He, he looks at his bowl, and he's like, I don't really like what's in my bowl. And then he looks over at, at what's in dad's bowl, and he's like, that looks really good. And he starts wanting what's in my bowl. And we have the exact same thing, you know? And in that moment, he's envious and self-seeking. I'm like, boy, you're 17 months old, you know? It happens at such a young age. And who teaches it to them? It's, it's inside of their, their hearts. We live in this mode of operation of self-seeking so often. You know, if there's a family photo that's taken and it's emailed to you or you've got it on your phone or you actually print it out. I mean, does anybody ever print out a photo anymore? Who's the first person that you look at? Yourself, right? I look at myself and I go, wow, I didn't realize my nose was that big. What is, what is happening here? We're self-seeking. And this is the opposite way of which Christ lived. He did not live his life being self-seeking. He came to serve and he laid his life down and he poured out his life for others. I think the apex of the expression of this is in John 13, right before Christ is going to be crucified. It's the Last Supper. He's with the disciples and he begins to wash their feet, their dirty, stinky, messy feet as they're walking around these ancient roads in sewage. Christ gets a bowl and a towel. He takes the place of a slave. A slave, a servant would do that job. God in human flesh, the creator of the universe. We've had some great sunrises and sunsets this week. It displays God's glory. God created all of that, but he humbled himself to the point where he's washing dirty feet. Christ's instruments of revolution are a bowl and a towel. God's way and God's wisdom is not through self-seeking, but through service. And Jesus calls us to this place of denying ourselves taking up our cross and following him. He told us that through washing feet, he gives us an example that we should do as he is done. Now, this isn't necessarily starting foot washing services because what happens at foot washing services, everybody comes with clean feet, you know, right? You better if you come to a foot washing service. That wasn't the point of John 13. The point of John 13 is find those dirty jobs that nobody else wants to do. Get dirty with people, love them and serve them the way that Jesus Christ did. And we see this self-seeking that can so easily enter into our hearts. Notice with me again in verse 14, if I could draw your attention there, it says, do not boast and lie against the truth. If I'm envious or I'm self-seeking, I'm in the exact opposite place that God would desire to me, me to be. I'm not in the place of truth. We go on to verse 15, and we see the source of earthly wisdom. This wisdom does not descend from above. So first understand, it doesn't come from God. If I'm self-seeking, if I'm envious, it's not from the Lord. It's not from his throne room. So where is it from? Three places. But it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. This earthly wisdom, it's from the world. When I speak about the world, I'm not talking about the ground or the cosmos, the physical world, but it's a system. It's the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. This is what the world is propagating. This is the stream, the language of your workplace. It's self-seeking. Serve yourself. It doesn't matter who you destroy as you climb up the ladder. Are you getting paid what you deserve? Are you appreciated? The work environment's very envious. 
longing after somebody else's success or somebody else's attention. We see it, we understand it. This is the language of our universities. It's self-seeking and it's envious, not that education doesn't have its place, but those who are putting together the, the curriculum throughout the schools of America, they're not considering godly wisdom, amen? We have to understand that this is the message of the world. It's through every aspect of life. It's earthly, but also it's sensual. How could this be? And first we have to understand what is the right message with sex. And I don't think that that gets talked about enough in church. And you're like, hey, did he just say sex in church? Like, did he not just use a code word? No, I didn't use a code word. I said it right out loud. Like, oh no, I got my fifth grader in here and he said sex. What am I going to do? Keep him in here. Your fifth grader needs to hear God's design for sex somewhere other than the local middle school. You know what I'm saying? So first and foremost, sex is God's idea. He created it. He made us male and female. He designed it for our benefit and for his glory, but he set some boundaries on it. And what are those boundaries? Inside of the commitment of marriage between a man and a wife. And sex inside of a biblical marriage is edifying. It builds up. But what does this earthly wisdom do? It prevents or it presents, excuse me, a perverted twisting of sex that becomes envious and becomes self-seeking. And so anything outside of God's directive for a sexual relationship, it brings absolute destruction, doesn't it? You've heard me said it before if you've been here for a few years, but it's similar to a fireplace in a home. Because we've got a fireplace at our house, and it's old school. We actually burn logs. We burn wood in this fireplace. And a few years ago, several years ago, we had a log roll out right into the fire, into the family room. And something that was very great and provided comfort and was ed edifying all of a sudden became very destructive. And that's sex. In its proper place, it's edifying but you get it outside of its proper place and it's gonna bring destruction right away. So if you're married, husband and wife, male and female, go home and light a fire, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> if you're not married and you're single, you need to hold off until you're married because it's gonna bring destruction in your life. Wait for God's timing, do it God's way. But examine earthly wisdom. Notice that it is sensual. Most advertisement has a sensuality that's included with it. You see the sports car, and what's the message from the sports car? One, it's envy. If I get this, everybody's gonna be envious of me. That's not true. Nobody's gonna notice your sports car coming up the street because they're too busy worrying about what they're driving, right? We're too concerned with what I'm driving to be worried about what you're driving. But there's also a sensual message like, hey, if you get this car, you're going to get this gal. If you get this car, you're going to get this guy. No, the only thing you're going to get is debt. Only thing you're going to get is a car payment, right? But we see this uh, abuse and perversion of sex presented in this earthly wisdom. This may surprise you, but the end of verse 15 says the source of this earthly wisdom, it's demonic. It comes from the pit of hell. It comes from Satan. In John 10, 10, Jesus told us what his mission was, to give us life and to give it more abundantly. But he also told us Satan's mission, that he comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. And he's very tricky, and he's very clever. And how is he going to kill? How is he going to steal? How is he going to destroy? 
by trying to get us to live in the stream of envy and self-seeking. It's no doubt that we struggle with being envious because Satan's like, I got him. If I can get Eric to start thinking about all the things he doesn't have and all the things that he wishes he was, then he's taken from the contentment of Christ. He's taken from the joy of Christ and I've stolen something from him and I've got a victory in his life. If Satan can get us to be self-seeking and start thinking those thoughts of nobody appreciates me, I'm tired of serving, I'm, I'm tired for caring for others, it's, it's time that people respect me, Satan's going, ah, I got him. Because once he starts acting out in that self-seeking, it's gonna bring about a great amount of destruction. It kind of sets the stage for us, doesn't it? It makes us stop and think and go, how much bitter envy is in my life and self-seeking is in my life? This is the source of that earthly wisdom. In verse 16, for where envy and self-seeking exists, confusion and every evil thing are there. You may want to underline that because this is the result of earthly wisdom. This is what I consider to be a colossal statement in Scripture. What I mean by that is sometimes God gives us big ideas. He states it in a, in a huge way that we can't miss. One of those is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not money that's evil, but it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. And God gives us another huge billboard statement here. He's saying, confusion and every evil thing exist because of envy and self-seeking. So if we can deal with envy and self-seeking in our lives, we can avoid confusion and we can avoid every evil thing. Bring it down to the root. Adultery is a selfish act. It's selfish because it doesn't care about God's glory and doesn't care about the spouse and doesn't care about the kids. Lying is a selfish act. When I lie, I don't care about the Lord and I don't care about the person that I'm hurting that I'm lying to. Stealing is a selfish act. I'm not caring about God and I'm not caring about the person that I'm taking from. You can go through all of the sins that we find in scripture and boil them down to envy and self-seeking. It's selfishness that's got to be dealt with at the root of this earthly wisdom. There is encouragement. Now we're presented the heavenly wisdom that God gives to us. Verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above. So the source of godly wisdom. Now we're comparing and contrasting. There's a wisdom that's from the pit of hell, that's from this world system, but there's a wisdom that's from the throne room of God. And the place that God sits and his security as he rules and reigns, he offers wisdom. How do we receive this wisdom? How do we put ourselves in a place where we can have this wisdom inputted into our lives? It starts with the condition of our heart. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. It's reverence. If we don't put God in his proper place and realize how powerful, majestic, wonderful, kind, gracious, but we realize, oh God, you're at the throne of my life. I want to do things your way. I fear you. Fear is where we have respect for him with awe and wonder, and we stand at that place of trembling of who God is. And without there, there's no wisdom. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 11.2 also tells us that humility brings wisdom. We've got to get to the place of realizing, I can't do this on my own. 
The earthly wisdom, my own wisdom, it's not working. It's resulting in confusion and every evil thing. So God, I need your help. That's, that's humility. It's recognizing how much we need the Lord's help. We realize who he is. We realize we need his help. And then what did chapter one tell us? James chapter one. It told us that if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And he'll give it liberally if we ask in faith. Reverence, humility, and then ask, and God will begin to pour out this wisdom upon our lives. So God's wisdom is first pure. So this is the mode of godly wisdom. This is the stream in which godly wisdom flows. At first, it's pure. There's a progression to godly wisdom, and the foundation of that progression is purity. You can trust that the wisdom that God gives to you is undefiled. There's no selfish motive in the counsel that God gives to you from his word. Isn't that wonderful? It's pure. And also, as we receive this godly wisdom, God wants to make us pure. How could we be pure as fallen sinners through the blood of Jesus Christ? That's what purifies us. And you may be looking at your past going, there's no way that I could be pure. Even as a believer, you may have sidestepped, walked away, been a prodigal. We've all been there. We've all done that. And you go, how could the Lord forgive me? The blood of Jesus Christ is more than sufficient to forgive us as we confess our sin to the Lord, to make us pure. Also, hear this, is the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to transform our lives, where there's a purity that comes about in our lives. First, God's wisdom is it's pure. Then notice that it's peaceable. And what peaceable means is free from worry. It's a peaceable spirit. It doesn't mean that our situation is necessarily peaceable, that it's easy. It's that in the midst of turmoil, we can have the peace of God. There's nothing like going to bed at night, and there may be difficulties at work, or maybe you've even lost your job, real health challenges and bad news from the doctor, but you go to bed and you go, you know what? I know that I have peace with God. I know that he's forgiven my sins. I know I'm the son of God the daughter of God. I know that when I die, I'm going home to be with the Lord. I'm forever going to be with the Lord. I have peace with the Lord. This speaks of that godly wisdom that provides that peace in our lives. We get his direction and we say, I'm walking in the provision of the Lord. I know this is exactly where the Lord would want me to be. The children of Israel, as they left Egypt and went to the promised land, God provided a cloud for them in the wilderness, the hot sun, so they would walk in the shade. They would wake up and go, okay, where's the shade? I'm going in the shade. And we want to go with the peace of God. Where's God's peace in this situation? Peace with the Lord and peace of the Lord, but godly wisdom, it's going to be peaceable. When someone sits down with you to try to help you sort something out, it should be done in a peaceable manner. You should be able to feel and experience the peace of God, but please don't mistake this with that there's no challenge. Don't mistake this with being, well, it's going to be easy. The next is God's wisdom is gentle. How does God deal with you? How does your father deal with you? I find him to be gentle. When God speaks through his word, when he speaks through a teaching, his still small voice, I just find it to be so gentle. There's something comforting about the voice of the father. Even when God's bringing correction in my life, it's gentle. It's also firm. I get the message from God like, hey, Eric, you don't want to keep going in this direction. 
if you keep going in this direction, uh, it's going to get bad. There's going to be consequences here. But it's so loving. It's so gentle. Jesus is gentle. So as we grow in godly wisdom, we're going to be gentle. It doesn't mean that at times we won't have to be firm, but there's going to be a gentleness that comes with it. The wisdom of God is gentle. This may surprise you, but also the wisdom of God is full of mercy. It's been said the most important thing about you is what you believe about God. What's your view of God? And do you view him as merciful because he describes himself that way? Don't allow preachers or screechers to define your view of God for you, all right? You go right to the word of God and what does God say about himself? And over and over again, he says, God, he just says, I'm merciful. God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger. And yet so many times our perception of God is, well, I messed up. He's just waiting to fry my face off. The lightning bolts are going to come down on me. And God is righteous, and he holds the line with truth. But when we're broken and we come to him, in that brokenness, he's merciful. And what is mercy? Mercy is not giving somebody what they deserve. So we've blown it, we've messed up, and God gives us mercy. He doesn't give us the judgment that we deserve. And on top of mercy, he gives us grace, which is unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. We deserve a consequence, and instead, he pours out his grace upon us. As we grow in the true and genuine knowledge of God, we're going to grow in mercy. We're going to see and be able to identify brokenness and be able to extend it to others and not be a person that marches around like a little general always giving people what they deserve, but being able to extend mercy, being full of good mercy. Also, we find that God's wisdom is full of good fruits, love and joy and peace and patience. Also, we find here in Scripture that it's willing to yield. This is big. This is really important, willing to, to yield. Because when it comes to issues of truth, we can't compromise. We've got to stand on truth. But there's so many conflicts that aren't biblical issues, like how the toothpaste comes out of the tube. You know, why argue over that? Maybe one of you is a roller and the other of you is a squeezer and the squeezer drives the roller nuts, you know? It's like, didn't your mom teach you anything? You roll from the bottom, you know? You don't squeeze in the middle. Be willing to yield. It's not a biblical issue. You both are going to heaven. The squeezer and the roller are both going to heaven. <laughs> Does not jeopardize your salvation. How about the toilet paper? You know, I like the toilet paper to come off the roll this way. I like the roller to come off this way. Who cares? Be willing to yield to each other. But as we're going through life, we oftentimes find it very difficult to be able to yield. We see it all the time in our, in our city with traffic, right? In order for there to be a yielding that takes place, as two lanes are coming together into one, many times somebody's got to speed up and somebody's got to slow down for you to come into one lane. And relationships the same way. You've got to yield to each other got to slow down. You got to speed up. You got to say, okay, you're right in this. This isn't something that we need to argue about. Abraham Lincoln showed this willingness to yield. On one occasion, Abraham Lincoln, to please a certain politician, issued a command to transfer certain regiments. 
When the Secretary of War, Edwin Stratton, received the order, he refused to carry it out, saying the president was a, f president was a fool. Now, that's a big moment right there. When your Secretary of War is like, I'm not obeying your command, and actually, that was a foolish decision. When Lincoln was told of this, he reported, if Stratton said, I'm a fool, then I must be, for he is nearly always right. I see for, I'll see for myself. As the two men talked, the president quickly realized that his decision was a serious mistake, and without hesitation, he withdrew it. A teachable and open spirit is often a major key in diffusing a conflict. That's amazing when you really stop and think about it. Here he is, the president of the United States. Someone's rejecting in his order and calling him a fool, and he says, well, if Staten says I'm a fool, then I must be a fool, because he's a man of wisdom and he's always right, and he had a willingness to be able to yield. The Proverbs put it this way, when we become unteachable, we become a fool. When we can't receive and hear instruction, God says that that is foolish. Godly wisdom is willing to yield. Also, godly wisdom is without partiality, not a different standard for different people. Consistency is the hallmark of heaven. It's the hallmark of wisdom. Also, godly wisdom is without hypocrisy. God doesn't tell us to do one thing while he does another. As we grow in godly wisdom, hypocrisy will diminish in our lives as well. In verse 18, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The ASV version says the harvest of righteousness. I like that. Godly wisdom will reproduce in an exponential way. So there's the fruit of righteousness. There's the harvest of righteousness. How is righteousness to be sown? It's to be sown in peace. Peace is the environment for godly wisdom. If we want to be a person of godly wisdom and sow that in other people's lives, then there needs to be peace. There should be an atmosphere of peace in our church in relationship for one another. For us to grow in the way that would glorify God, for the harvest of righteousness to be exponential, then there should be peace in our relationships with one another. In a husband and wife relationship, for godly wisdom to thrive, there should be an atmosphere of peace. In relationship with kids, there should be an atmosphere of peace. So what happens when there's not that atmosphere of peace? What happens when there's conflict? Look at the end of verse 18. It says, by those who make peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. If there is a conflict, there'll be no peace without one, someone endeavoring to go and make peace. So how does that happen? Very quickly, just be skimming the surface on this topic. How do I be a peacemaker? First is I have to look at myself. I have to look and see what I've done to contribute to this conflict. It may be full on sin. It may just have been insensitivity or foolishness, but I have to look at my own actions and my own attitudes to see what I'm contributing to this conflict. Jesus said it's getting the log out of our own eye. Whenever there's a conflict, it's always somebody else's fault. It's always, you know, what did Adam say? The woman you gave me. That was his first response when he was busted by God. So we've got to stop blame shifting and look at our own hearts and our lives first. And when we do discover that we've done something wrong, we need to confess it to God and the person that we've hurt. 
if I'm sorry isn't in your vocabulary, if you can't think of a time where you said you're sorry in the last year or two years or five years, there's probably some really hurting relationships around you. And start to look and say, Lord, what do I need to own before you? What do I need to own before others? And go to them and say, I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me because I hurt God and I hurt you by doing this? Then there's those times where we do need to confront someone who's sinned against us. And the manner that we're to do this is with gentleness. Jesus does talk about the speck in our brother's eye. If you've had a piece of sawdust or a sliver in your eye and you've had to go to the doctor and the doctors had to get it out, it's so sensitive. And you're like, please be gentle. You're going into someone's soul, so be gentle. Be meek. Don't go in there with brute force, but go in there with gentleness, considering how you'd like to be treated in this situation. Then there needs to be forgiveness. That's found at the cross, where Jesus has freely forgiven us, so we're able to freely forgive. I find God's word to be timely. And maybe on the way to church this morning, there was a fight in the car with you and your wife or whoever you came with. And right now you're thinking, I sure hope they heard this message, and I sure hope they <laughs> apologize on the way home. You know, this is their fault, you know. No, think about what did I do to contribute to this? What do I need to do to apologize? Maybe a divide that goes much deeper than an argument on, a way, on the way to church and the Lord's just beginning to work in your heart and say, try to go and make peace. Is peace always attainable? No, in Proverbs 12 it says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So some people will refuse to live in the environment of peace. They'll rather have the environment of conflict and if you've done everything that you can to live in peace with them, then you're free before the Lord. It's not surprising in conclusion to find that Jesus is godly wisdom. He really embodies godly wisdom. Jesus is pure. He's peaceable. He's gentle. He's full of mercy. Jesus was willing to yield to the Father, to give up his will to do the will of the Father. Jesus doesn't have favorites. There's no hypocrisy in Jesus. So for us to grow in godly wisdom, guess what the key is? It's Jesus. It's spending time with Jesus. It's loving Jesus. It's knowing him more. It's walking with him throughout the day. Because without him alive in us, we will not be able to live these things out. But also, there's a part of us that needs to reject earthly wisdom. You go, you know what? There is some self-seeking here. There is some envy here that needs to go. I'm emptying myself of that. I'm turning away from that. I'm turning to the Lord and walking with Christ to allow this wisdom to come in. Let's go back to James 1 and look at how this book started, and we'll pray. James 1, verse 5, says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let's stand and pray and ask for that.